Um, can I say, as I often do, um, that I love you, and it's a high privilege and honor to meet with you in this place. Um, I don't take it for granted, and uh, and you know, I hope that you know. Um, come in here on Sunday. I never want to waste your time. You know, I, I never just want you to come in and have a generic kind of worship experience. I mean, I think, you know, some people ask, well, Jim, why do you yell so much? And of course, Karen has to explain it to the kids every week. Well, why is he yelling so much? And Karen gives them a good answer, I think, from my perspective anyway. It's how the Word of God affects Jim. And uh, to me, there's nothing more important than the Word of God, right? And so when you come in here, I, I want huge things for you. I don't want to just have another nice little service and, okay, I did Sunday, I did church, and I'm out. I want huge things for you when you come in here. I want them for me too. <laughs> you know, I studied in seminary. A preacher got converted while he was preaching, right? Um, so, anyway. I'm not a professor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not a life coach. I am a preacher. And I preach the truth of Jesus Christ. It's what I do. No other truth matters. There is no other ultimate truth. But nothing else matters except getting Him right and getting the Word of God right. Nothing else at the end of the day matters at all. And so I want huge things for you when you come in here. I want life-changing things for you when you come in here. Sometimes it's why I scream a lot. <laughs> it just affects me that way. You know, some people, I think, confuse it for anger. Um... Maybe sometimes it is righteous indignation. It's so much the false teaching that's in the world. I, I admit that that comes out. But what I want for you is that born again and I never can ever be the same again thing. And I want that for you and I want you to be building on that every week. I want everything for you when you come in here. For the unbeliever or the nominal Christian, I want you to genuinely encounter the awesome and fearsome God of Scripture in such a way that it might drive you to true conversion. I desire all there is for you, the true believer. I want you to perpetually encounter the awesome, fearsome God of Scripture that you would hold fast to Him and love Him and follow Him with all your might. These are not small things, beloved. I know that many of you are probably not convinced. But this is the most important hour of your week. God meets in tabernacles with His people when they gather together on the first day of the week in a unique way. It's what he does. So the first thing I learned in preaching class in seminary 
is that my job is impossible. I can't give you, I can't hand off to you what I want to give you. I cannot hand it off. I can't do it. It doesn't matter how eloquent I am, how gifted I am, how good of a communicator I am. It doesn't, none of that matters. I can't give you what I would love to give you. I can't do it. It's supernatural. Only God can do it. So I know that at the outset, every good preacher, if he went to a good seminary, he knows he's helpless apart from what the Spirit of God does. Right? So, it is impossible. I know that it is impossible. The very best I can do is have integrity with this. That's the best a pastor can do. That's the best thing I can do. That's, the, that's how I can love you the most, is have integrity with the Word of God. 66 books of the Bible. That's, the, that's, that's all I've got. All I can do is have integrity with the Word of God. That's all I can do. That's how I love you the best. That's how I love you the best. That's why I'm not an entertainer. I don't try to be a comedian. I don't try to entertain you or dazzle you with my theological knowledge. I want more important things for you. I want everything. And that means walking intimately with Jesus every single day of your life. That's what I want for you. So at ICM, we don't have chatty sermons. We open the Bible and we preach all of God's Word. The parts that we like and the parts that many don't like. It's what, well, C.S. Lewis says, you know, this is a book for grown ups. <laughs> this is a book for grown ups, right? It's a book for grown-ups. <laughs> so what grown-up preachers do in real churches is preach all of God's Word. Even when I know some of you are not going to particularly like it, and some of you may never come back. But you know, a pastor can't be overly concerned with his popularity or the size of his congregation. Obviously, a pastor wants as many people to come and hear the truth as, as, is, as is possible, right? I'd love to fill this room up. But my principal concern is to have integrity before God and before you. To love God and to love you. I've seen this many times. I've been doing this 30 plus years. Lay and vocational. Sometimes... People will come to understand what the Bible is actually saying and they, they walk away. Right? If God's like that, I don't, want, I don't want any of that. Right? And so they'll walk away. Maybe they'll land in some pseudo-church or some false denomination, you know, that edits God. And, uh, you know, they can be happy there because God is edited. They don't talk about any of the hard things that God says. They don't address... Uh, the difficult passages, they only deal with, they just simply have happy church every week, right? So, it's possible some of you will walk away today. You say, God's really like that. I don't, I don't want God. I don't want that God. It happens all the time. 
I've seen it so many times. People just walk away. And they begin to rationalize and they become, begin to become very sophisticated in their backhanded arguments, right? Anything to deny the hard truths of Scripture. So we're going to talk about grown-up things tonight. It's because I will not settle for small things for you. I won't. I won't. So is it, when I always preach about hard things, I always preface it with Isaiah 66 too. God says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So I will ask you, some of you may be visitors, you may not be Christians, that's fine. Um, but for those of you who profess to be Christians, let me ask you this, are you humble before the word of God? Even when it's hard to receive. Are you contrite in spirit with the word of God? Are you lowly and repentant before his truth? Are you willing to tremble if that's all you can do? <laughs> Are you willing to tremble before God? And just let him be God and you be who you are, which is dirt that he breathed life into? Are you willing for him to be God and you be a creature? Are you willing to hear the truth? the Lord. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Isaiah 66 too. Listen to this. He says, but there's something I'm looking for. This is God speaking. There's something I'm looking for. He says, I'm looking for that person, that simple and plain person who has a reverent response to what I say, right? This person doesn't discount it. They don't edit it. They don't dismiss it. They don't ignore it. They humbly and with contrition receive it. And we sometimes tremble before this awesome God. Every man that saw him in the scriptures, I tell you this all the time, every man that caught a vision of God in the scriptures, he hid his face as fast as he could. He is an awesome God. And sometimes that's lost in the modern church. Yes, I talked about two weeks ago. He's our friend. Isn't it an awesome thing? A friend before whom we feel compelled to get on our face. So, it's true. Your view of the Bible will accurately reflect your view of God. And I, I say this somewhat frequently. If you don't think God's God enough, to reveal this and preserve this to you intact, then I don't know why you're here. If your God is that pathetic, I don't know why you would worship Him. This church believes this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. It is God-breathed. God says what He means and He means what He says. And you know, in what is much of what is called the modern church, people are just completely eliminating certain passages. I don't like that passage. We're not going to talk about that anymore. It's no longer culturally acceptable. 
believe what God clearly says in his word. So, we've been in this series for 14 weeks now. This came out of nowhere. I was going to get into one of the Gospels at the first of the year, and then God has laid this on my heart. And as you know, we've been talking about we get to some of the, the, the privileges that God has afforded us. We get to pray, worship, obey, believe, suffer, be made holy, give, love, and serve the body. We get God's truth both written and incarnate, we get to be God's witnesses in the world. We get to live the abundant life, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley. And in the last three weeks, we've been talking about the fact that uh, we are headed to heaven. We get to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. We get to lay up treasures for our forever life. Right now, today, as we exercise our stewardship on this planet. And two weeks ago... We, uh, we talked about the fact that we get to be God's friend. A sacred friendship forever. He not only loves us, someone tell me, He not only loves us, what? He likes us. There's a beautiful distinction there. And I'm not going to go into it tonight. There's, to me, there's a breathtaking distinction there. So, after three weeks of sermons that really focused on heaven, namely God, God is our reward, God is our uh, highest treasure and, and greatest pleasure. We, we've been talking a lot about that, although we've also talked about the, the many derivative joys that flow from the bounty of His hand. But the Holy Spirit this week, He convicted me about this week's sermon. And I didn't get it at first. But then it dawned on me how this sermon perfectly amplifies, magnifies, and in a pro profound way brings into sharp contrast all the things we've been saying about heaven. Right? The Holy Spirit says, I know you've been talking a lot, Jim, about what my people get. I want you to tell them what they don't get. I want you to tell them what they don't get. So this sermon is not what we get, it's the polar opposite of what we get. It's what we don't get. In my spirit, the Lord said, remind my people that they don't get hell. They will never get hell. Remind them that my incarnation and crucifixion has saved them from hell. Remind them that they will not get what they deserve. You can never adequately and ultimately rejoice in all that God has done and promised to you as a Christian if you do not clearly understand what your pre-conversion sin warrants. Which is eternal condemnation. God has clearly said it to us. What are the wages of sin? What are the wages of sin? Death. Death and the second death. This is the wage of sin. We get to not go to hell because of the free gift of the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus. Looking at the eternal death in hell gives fitting perspective on the eternal gift of life 
This is God's message to us this evening. And I just want you to be in awe of your God, and I want you to be in awe of your salvation. What I'm saying to you is, is from, the, from the Word of God. <laughs> this is not Jim preaching uh, what he wants to preach. I'm preaching what God has laid on my heart to preach from His Word. Hell is in part a contrasting commentary on heaven. Some years ago, true story, some years ago a royal princess came out of one of the Church of England's services and talked to the, the priest there. And she said, is there such a place as hell? And the priest said, yes. The scriptures speak to it. The church has always believed it. And the Church of England confesses it. And she said, then why in God's name do you never tell us about it? I thought that was profound. So because I fear God more than anything else, more than I fear a the congregation, um, we will talk about this hard truth revealed in Scripture. It's been two years or more since we've talked about this in detail. So in a very broad stroke summary, probably you could do just as well as I. You know what Jesus says if you know your Bible. If you're biblically literate, you know what the Bible says. He says, hell is real, it is eternal, it is terrible, it is deserved, and it is inescapable once you are there. These are the words of Jesus regarding hell. Jesus said, it is eternal punishment, it is eternal fire, it is a furnace of fire, it is an unquenchable fire, it is a place where everyone is salted with fire, it is a place of torment and agony with no escape, it is a place of outer darkness, it is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's seven times in the Gospels, it is a place where their worm does not die three times in Mark 9 alone. This is what you deserve. I don't care how good you think you are. Apart from Jesus Christ, this is what our sin deeds. This is a picture of God's omnipotent opposition against all who rebel against Him. Yeah, grown-up stuff tonight. I pray you continue to remember Isaiah's words, humility, contrition, and a little bit of trembling. In reaction to Jesus' horrifying description of eternal damnation, many have sought to mitigate God's clear teaching in several ways. You know them probably. First of all, annihilation. Some teach, this is a false teaching, it's not a biblical teaching, that after some appropriate time of punishment in hell, that the soul goes out of existence. The resurrected body and soul goes out of existence. It's, 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 yeah, the being is annihilated. If you know your Bible, you know this contradicts the clear words of Jesus. The second one is called universal restoration. It teaches that some people will go into hell like a, it's a kind of like a, a, the Catholic 
false teaching of purgatory. You, you, you go into hell, and hell is redemptive, right? And hell causes you to, 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 to re repent and believe and, and seek God. And, and so uh, you go into hell for a time, but ultimately you come out and everyone is saved. This is another teaching that's very popular in the what is called the church today. Both of these teachings are categorically false. There's not one credible hope that these can be true if you actually stick to the Bible. There's not one credible hope that these can be true, at least from a biblical perspective. Both of these views strictly contradict the words of Jesus. And I always remember what Francis Chan says about biblical interpretation. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's brilliant. Um, you know when it gets really hard and you're not quite sure what God means? Just read it like a nine-year-old. Just let the words mean what the words mean. Just receive you know, normal rules of grammar. Just let, just let the, the text come to you. Just receive it. What would a nine-year-old say? That's a beautiful way to interpret the Bible. Without putting our intellectual spin or our cultural presuppositions on the text, right? Just read it like a nine-year-old. I pray that's how you read the Bible. So the biblical doctrine of hell is not unclear in any way. It's just hated. Men hate it. Men hate it. So you read some of these false teachers, these pseudo-teachers, and they readily admit they're not getting annihilationism or universal restoration from the text. They don't get it from the text. They get it from their own imaginings, from their own emotions as they contemplate eternal torment. And I, I've got to tell you, if you think deeply about it, it is a weighty doctrine. It is a weighty doctrine. There's no denying it. But what we can't do, beloved, is lay our fallen, sinful, temporal, finite emotions on the text. You can't say, well, I don't want to believe that. Listen, once you, stop, once you step away from this, you have nowhere to stop. It's, just, it's a slippery slope to the bottom. There's nowhere to stop. Once you begin to discount the Bible, there's nowhere to stop. Next week you'll be discounting something else. The following week you'll discount something else. The following week, if it's convenient, you'll discount something else. It's why so much of Christianity is apostate. Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and much of Protestantism is apostate because they left this a long time ago. They left it a long time ago. You have to decide. You have to decide, right? You have to decide. So as every real Christian in this room knows, biblical truth is not up for a vote. It doesn't matter how you feel, or I feel, or what I think, or what you think. All that matters at the end of the day, beloved, and I say this, so you'll hopefully grab onto it, is what God says. What does God say? What does God say about it? 
It doesn't matter what the TV personality said or the movie star said or the, the politician said. It does not matter in the least. What does God say? What does God say? Truth is not up for a vote. God just simply reveals it. It's an, it's an awesome thing. He gives men the will to receive it or reject it, right? It's your choice. You get to decide if God's God enough to deliver this intact and you're going to submit your life to it or not. You get to decide that. God's not going to force it on you. You get to decide. Yeah, that's the true word of God. He's God enough to reveal Himself and save it and bring it to me. He's God enough. It's what you have to decide, beloved. It's what you have to decide. So, the doctrine of hell in the Old Testament... It's not well developed. Uh, there's a place called Sheol. The Jews called it Sheol. And it's a divided place, right? It's a divided place. Those who die and, and are uh, judged for their sins, those who land in what was called paradise or in the bosom of Abraham. But as mentioned earlier, Jesus Christ is explicit in the New Testament. It is real. It is a place of suffering, and it is forever. In my study this week, I saw that fire is used to describe hell 20 times in Scripture. Jesus calls hell a place of torment, agony, outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and where the worm never dies. These are the red words. These are the words of Jesus. I'm not sure I'm aware of any biblical truth more uh, attested to, or more often attested to, than the fact that hell is compared to fire. Many want to try to lessen the impact of this image by saying that it is only a metaphor, but is it not evident in common communication that the thing being symbolized is often far worse than the symbol itself? The aspect of hell's eternality is often called into question by false teachers, but a very quick survey that I did this week, there are at least 12 explicit and implicit references to the everlasting nature a punishment in hell. Dante is right. What was written above the gates of hell? Anybody remember? Abandon all hope, all who enter here. No one ever comes out. I don't care what the Catholic Church says. Nobody ever comes out. If we're going to be Bible believers, okay? Nobody ever comes out. Jesus says there's a great chasm fixed between heaven and hell and no one can traverse it. Luke chapter 16. I can go to many places to document the fact that hell is everlasting, but I can simply go to Matthew 25. If you want to turn with me very quickly there, most of you will be familiar with Matthew 25. Uh, verses 20, pardon me, Matthew 25, uh, verses 41 and 46, just briefly. This is at the judgment of the Gentiles, the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, 41. Then he said to those on his left, he said to the goats, he said, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devils and his angels. These are the words of Jesus. These are red words. These are the words of God. Okay? 
Not some theologian, not some priest, not some preacher, not some denomination. These are the words of God. Verse 46, jump down to verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay? So read it like a nine-year-old. What does a nine-year-old hear? Eternal punishment and eternal life. You can't mitigate that. You can't say eternal uh, means when it's talking about punishment means something else than when it's talking about life, uh, eternal life. You can't say that with any integrity. It's the same Greek word. It's the same Greek word. You can reject it. You can hate it and reject it or minimize it or ignore it, but it's the words of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus said. You have to decide, beloved. You have to decide. It's your decision. If you believe the words of Jesus or not. I've got a lot of verses here. If you want my notes, I'll send you my notes. I'm not gonna, I don't have time to give you all of the verses. So, yeah, the nine-year-old principle works here. I like in, in Hebrews 6.12, it's interesting that eternal judgment is called an elementary teaching. We're supposed to understand this. That the awfulness of hell is a commentary on how heinous your sin is and how heinous my sin is. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. So why is eternal and infinite wrath in hell warranted for temple sin? You know, some philosophers will say, now how, how can it be right to sin for 70 years if you get your 70 years? How can it be right to sin for 70 years and be punished forever? How can that be right? Does anybody know? How can it be right? How can a finite amount of sin incur infinite judgment? How, how can that be true? How do we understand that? Well, it's because you have sinned against an infinite being. You have sinned against God. You have sinned against an eternal and infinite God. The consequence will be, if you're not in Jesus Christ, eternal and infinite wrath. It's just Bible, beloved. It's just Bible. There's another way Jesus describes hell. He calls it outer darkness. He calls it, well, over in Jude 13, the Holy Spirit calls it black darkness. One theologian put it like this. This seems to imply that it will be infinitely worse than any physical, moral, mental, or spiritual darkness ever experienced on the earth. No dawns, no mornings, no ray of light, no blue sky. And every day will be night. Another descriptive term I've already mentioned several times Jesus uses is the weeping and gnashing of teeth seven times in Scripture. Jesus says this. I think there are two aspects to the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Obviously, in my view, it's about anger and it's about um, rage. And it's about agony. So there's, 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 a, there's a weeping due to the torment and the agony. And then there's this rage. You know, uh, George Bernard Shaw said, well, at least I'll have interesting conversations in hell. No, he won't. No, he won't. Nobody in hell is going to talk to anybody else in hell because they all hate each other with a supreme hatred. They hate God foremost and they hate each other. 
It's what the gnashing of teeth is all about. It's, it's, it's hatred, beloved. It's anger. It's rage. It's what you see in Richard Dawkins' eyes and hear in his voice when he's raging at God in the Bible. The most famous atheist on the planet. When he's raging and the veins are sticking out in his head and he's red-faced and his hair's all askew and he's... Yeah. If you don't believe in God, what difference does it make? Why are you so excited? Right? It's amazing how many atheists betray that it's really just hatred for a God they will not bow their knee to. So hell is pure hatred. C.S. Lewis is right when he says, the damned are successful rebels to the end. The door of hell is locked on the inside. What's he saying? It's true. The Bible's clear. God will cast the sinner into hell. But the sinner, it's because the sinner has rejected God. The sinner hates God. Lewis says, you know, the sinner's not going to come out if the precondition is. He wants out. He wants more than anything to come out. It's awful. But if the precondition is, I'll love Jesus Christ and worship Jesus Christ and serve Jesus Christ for uh, all eternity, he won't come out. That's how much he hates. That's how much natural man hates God. I know this is hard for some of you because you've not been taught these things. All you've got to do is do a really good study of Romans 1, 2, and 3. And you will understand. You will understand. So hell intensifies the hatred of God. It can't be redemptive as universal restoration talks about. And the question is always asked. I get it a lot. Some of you who are, are you know, serious in your witnessing out in the world, you get this question. How can a good God send people to hell? How many of you have had this question before? How can a good God send people to hell? So how do we answer that? There's a flaw. There's a flaw in the question. There are no good people. If we believe what the Bible says, and I hope everyone in here does, there are God-haters and God-lovers. There's nobody in the middle. There's nobody in the middle. There's nothing in the middle. Natural man hates God. Regenerate man, supernatural man, the born-again man, loves God. And there's nobody in the middle. This is the biblical dichotomy. You got to, listen, beloved, you got to decide. Listen, just give up on Christianity right now. I'm, I'm just going to tell you. Just give it up right now. If you are not going to come to the, to the conclusion that this is the Word of God, because you have nowhere to stand. Outside of this, it's somebody's opinion. Beloved, outside of this, it's somebody's opinion. It's just somebody's opinion. And you say, well, Jim, well, you're preaching, sounds like you're preaching your opinion. No, I'm trying to have integrity, and I'm trying to preach the truth. You go check me out, and if I'm wrong, you come tell me, okay? I'm happy to be corrected. I'm happy to be Corrected. One thing D.A. Carson says, uh, well-known uh, theologian in the States, I love what he says, and I, I want you to hear this. At the judgment, not only will justice be done, justice will be seen to be done. I told you a week or so ago, there'll be no innocent people in hell. There'll be no mistakes made. <laughs> only God-haters. 
And we talked about it, and Eduardo said a, a profound thing. He was, he was awake, and he said a profound thing at Bible study. Wednesday night, he doesn't feel well. He said a profound thing. You know, some people say, well, I don't hate God, but you can tell by their life that they're indifferent to Him. That's the equivalence of hate. You know, love's not the opposite of hate. Eduardo told us, and I, I think he's right. Indifference is the opposite. Indifference is the opposite of love. I've heard that and read that before. So, C.S. Lewis is right. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done, God. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done, sinner. Those are the ones who land in hell. So in summary, the Bible is crystal clear regarding hell. It is real. It is a place of suffering. <clears throat> and it is forever. There's this long-standing misconception regarding biblical, the bi- biblical doctrine of hell that, I, that a preacher tries to use it to scare someone into to becoming a Christian. That <laughs> you, you're not going to become a Christian because you fear hell. Christians, Christians love God. It's not, you don't become a Christian because you fear something. You become a Christian because you love Christ. That's why you become a Christian. You know? Certainly God can use the truth to, to, to draw people to Himself, but you can't scare somebody into being a Christian. That's not what this is about. It's not what it's about, beloved. Famous 19th century American theologian W.G.T. Shedd said, if there were no hell revealed in Scripture, we should be compelled to deduce one. Why would he say something like that? Because the God of the Bible is so awesome. He is so holy. He is so righteous. He is so just. There must be hell for those who reject this awesome God. There has to be a place. He is absolutely right about that. So I want you to hear me. I'm, I'm, I'm just about finished, but I want you to pay attention to these last few things I say. I feel like I'm losing some of you. But I, I, I want you to hear these, these, few, these last few comments for sure. I don't want you to miss these. I want you to see how your view of what God teaches about hell reveals your perspective. Okay? If we look at ourselves, we are very tempted to say that eternal Suffering cannot be just. And so the Bible cannot be teaching it. This is where, this is the error that many false teachers go down. Because they have such a revulsion to this biblical truth. They just simply say the Bible can't be teaching that. That's if you're looking at yourself. If you look at God, which I, I challenge you, you go study hell for yourself, the doctrine of hell in the Bible. What happened to me as I studied it was deep and profound worship. Deep and profound worship of this awesome God. So, if we're looking at God, if we're looking at the greatness of the biblical God, we are otherwise compelled to say, since God says biblical hell is real, then it must be just. Therefore, if eternal punishment is just, how infinitely incomprehensible is the holiness of God? 
if eternal punishment is just, how infinitely incomprehensible is the evil of my sin before God and against God. If eternal punishment is just, how infinitely blameworthy it must be to treat the glory of God with indifference. If eternal punishment is just, what infinite glory and purity God must have that everlasting suffering is the fitting punishment for those who dishonor and disobey Him. If eternal punishment is just, what a stunning, shocking, amazing, astonishing, unbelievable, scandalous thing is the Son of God being crucified on a cross for my sin. You know, I've heard people say, Hell's an outrageous doctrine! You want to know the most outrageous doctrine in the Bible? God died for you. It's a scandal, beloved. It's a spiritual scandal that God would die for the likes of you. That's the most outlandish doctrine in the scripture. Hell quantifies how heinous our sin is before God, and hell quantifies the depth of sufferings of Jesus on the cross as he atoned for our sin. I'll close with Jonathan Edwards, famous 18th century American theologian. I've used him many times in the last few weeks. He says to the, to the rebel, the one who will not come to Christ, who will not bow a knee to Christ. He says, why should you not have wrath as great as the love and mercy you have despised and rejected? Meaning, infinite and eternal. I'm going to read it to you again. Why should you not have wrath, as he says to the rebel, why should you not have wrath as great as the love and mercy which you have despised and rejected. God says, Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So, we talked three weeks about heaven. And beloved, the only way you're ever going to get any kind of ultimate comprehension about the blessedness of heaven is understand that you deserved hell. When you understand that, it fully informs the work of Jesus on the cross and it fully informs the blessedness of heaven. I think the fact that the modern church does not preach the reality of hell I think it, dim it diminishes the work of Christ and it diminishes Christ in the eyes of his, of his people. So, God says, remind my people what they don't get. Remind my people they will not get what their sin justly deserves. Remind my people they will not go to hell. Remind my people I have saved them 
from an eternal hell, and I am giving them an eternal heaven. I, I just confess that uh, I have been moved this week. Things come into perspective. Things come into focus. When you look at these weighty truths, and I challenge you, you ignore them and dismiss them at your peril. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words of the Son of God. Any questions, please shoot me an email. Call me. Invite me to your house for cake. Whatever. I know it's hard. But listen, when we get some sense of this dreadful doctrine in the Bible. We get some sense of the greatness of God and some sense of how valuable our salvation is. Some of you, I'm done. Some of you don't live like it's valuable. Some of you aren't living every day like it's valuable. doesn't drive you how valuable your salvation is. You've not thought deeply what, about what God has saved you from. So many people in the modern age, well, of course God should save me. He should save me. He made me. He owes me salvation. But what is grace anyway? Does God owe anyone grace? Grace is grace. It's unmerited. Beloved, when you think deeply about the words of Jesus, you will not live your Christianity superficially. Take that to the bank. If you meditate deeply on the words of Christ with respect to what He saved you from, you will not live your life superficially. You will not. We're going to celebrate the